go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! From an outsider's perspective, Brexit seems like it's going really, really well for you guys. Oh my god. <laughs> like yeah. so no, it, it, it. incredibly well. I don't think you could have picked a better time to close yourselves off from the rest of the continent. Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to a matinee cast presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is Dispatch number 12. Our mission is this. COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives, and obviously that includes being able to go to the movies. That means that our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective need to shift. However, it doesn't mean that the overall film discussion needs to stop. So while we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of a decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. It's strange to say this, folks, but summer is almost over. By the time this episode goes to air, there will be just one week left in August. And yes, I know, summer doesn't officially end until September 22nd, but let's get honest, summer ends when August ends. Ordinarily, summer's end has these bittersweet markers like children going back to school or carnivals or thoughts of festival season where movies are concerned. But this year, of course, that is all so very up in the air. Summer is almost over, but was it ever really here? In moments of such introspection, I'm happy that I can turn to today's guest. He's one of the oldest friends I have around these parts, and a genuinely good lad to raise a glass with and ponder life's great quandaries. I should know. I've had the pleasure a few times when one of us was in the other's country, and all the way from London, England. Simon Collum is here. How are you, mate? Hi. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, it's just, it, you know, it's, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I mean, I want to, you, you want to be positive. And of course, I am ultimately, um, I, I feel very privileged in, in the nature of that, how, how everything has affected me. But ultimately, it's so strange. It's, yeah. So strange. Yeah. I mean, that that's, you know, people ask you, how, people ask me, like, how are you doing? I'm like, I mean, all things considered, <laughs> you know, it's, it, mm. it's, 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 it's a, it's a strange question to, to answer sometimes. How you doing? You know, you never thought that it would take that much thought, but these days it does. Um, we have a little bit of housekeeping off the top of the show. So, um, please bear with us before we get into the main festivities. First things first, um, the show in whatever version it is, whether it's the matinee cast or the Winchester Chronicles typically takes a September hiatus and that will start with the end of this show. I'm really proud that I've been able to keep this podcast going on schedule throughout isolation. Um, being able to achieve anything during such uncertain times, both globally and personally, is tricky. So I'm really thrilled that I've been able to keep this little project going and that people continue to tune in and stop by. That said, I need to take a bit of a break to replenish some spoons, um, but a new season of podcasts will begin in October. So please do come back for that. On that note, we will be going back to the full matinee cast come early October. Between what has already come uh, out in 2020, uh, films like The Five Bloods and First Cow, um, and what will uh, drop um, both at home and potentially in some version of cinema, um, there's going to be enough 
that I'd like to discuss that will take me through to the end of the year. Um, so if there is a fall film or something that's come out this year that we haven't already covered that you'd like to call dibs on or something stellar that's dropped in our lap since March, please hit me up and we'll talk about it on the show. I believe there's a new film by Chris Nolan coming out. You know, I would just like to say <laughs> once and for all that for all of the hand wringing and the naysaying about how comic book films are ruining the cinematic landscape, that it was a Christopher Nolan joint that dominated the talk of when we can go back to movies, you know? Black Widow didn't do this. Mm. Wonder Woman didn't do this. Christopher Nolan did this and tried to push us back into theaters before we were ready. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm almost ready to boycott it on principle. But, but yes, I have heard <laughs> of this little indie chestnut called Tenet. Remains to be seen when I'll get a chance to see it. Last but not least, TIFF is actually happening. They are doing a scaled down physical and a completely virtual festival this year from September 10th to 19th. I am hoping to record one or two dispatches of Wicked Little Town, the um, audio postcards that I usually record during the festival. It might be a little hard to coordinate since this year I'll be doing the festival entirely digitally, but if you are screening TIFF films, uh, please get in touch and I'd love to record a chat and please watch your feed because the hiatus in September may be broken up, hopefully will be broken up by one or two postcards from whatever is going to be coming of uh, TIFF's 2020 festival. But on with the show, on our 12th dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles, we will be discussing Captain Fantastic. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side, but first we begin with Creature Comforts. One last time with feeling creature comforts is what we have been doing to keep ourselves entertained, keep our spirits up, keep our, our chin up during these uncertain times while we can't really go out and around and uh, do the kinds of things that we would normally do. Simon, why don't you get us started? What uh, What's something you've been doing to keep yourself uh, amused and entertained while you've been in isolation? Lego. Really? <laughs> Lots of Lego. With your daughter or just, you know, that that's what you'll be doing like in the evening after the kiddo's gone to bed? It's under the premise of being with the kiddo, um, and generally speaking, <laughs> it is. But uh, she's three, so <laughs> there's only so much she'll be able to do. And so, I've started that. I mean, that that's kind of the non 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 media non film TV kind of thing. Lego is oddly calming to to actually like partake yeah. in. There's something about the kind of instructions being so clear cut and just you know what I mean. You just just methodically just go through it one at a time i've never been really a lego person i mean prior i mean my daughter got into a bit of duplo and all that kind of thing when she was even younger than three but she kind of started being able to play with like very small lego the the, the normal lego basically sets and then i just thought well i guess she's not going to start choking on him or anything like that. you know what i mean she's she's not she's not that uh much of a toddler right. so i was like you know what we could start doing this but then of course that just opens up this world which i've never really got into which i think there's some correlation between lego and kind of film nuts and stuff as well pop 
culture links and all that type of thing. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there, there's Lego for everything now. There's Lego for Seinfeld. There's Lego for Home Alone. There's Lego. Like, I mean, every major yeah. movie comes with Lego sets. And I was going to ask, are you mostly a follow the steps and build the build the, the structure? Or have you started kind of like taking random pieces and building yourself little little creations of your own? Well, I, I think with, with regards to uh, my daughter's set, I got one set, which was that bookshop one, which was very fancy, which I pretty much did on my own with Siobhan kind of watching and joining in where she could. Um, but the um, the, the one for Siobhan sets, for the most part, we all we build it together initially and then it all kind of gets broken down and into the box, you know, and then it can be used for anything after that point. Oh, cool. Uh, well, my first creature comfort is uh, something that I'm, I know a lot of people have caught up with over the last few weeks and uh, it has brought me great amounts of joy since uh, the last dispatch. I have been tuning into YouTube to catch up with... Um, Twins, the new trend. Twins reacts. Have you seen these uh, these brothers and their musical journey? Is this the Phil Collins yep. brothers? Yeah, they, they they watched Phil Collins and they were just blown away by his drums. That's them. <laughs> they were great. Yeah, they are. So <laughs> it's it's two brothers, two twin brothers who have. Been, I mean, they they've got their their YouTube thread is short videos. Like they're usually anywhere between five minutes and ten minutes, and most of it is them listening to a song for the first time that they've never heard before and they're they're zoomers so they're early 20s like if i'm going to take bets they're somewhere between 18 and 24 i have no idea exactly how old um i'm sure i could look it up but um they so they play you know they they're taking suggestions of songs that they should listen to and they like click play for the first time on their camera and they listen to it and they always react and it's been said before, but it bears repeating. Um, what makes these videos so wonderful is they're not coming to this music with any kind of cynicism. They're not coming to it, you know, the way that a lot of film conversation can boil down into here's 20 reasons why Casablanca is not as great as you think. You know, it's, it's the complete opposite of that. They are just hitting play on a song they've never heard before and they're genuinely curious and optimistic and usually really enamored with what they get to hear and it 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 really epitomizes that that curiosity that you that you get to at a certain age where there's been all this culture whether it's movies or books or what have you like whatever type of culture you get to an age where you just have the vault thrown open and you get to experience everything for the first time and they're doing that live on a camera and it's wonderful they they get into like the parts of the song and they they're always just kind of apologetic about how they've never heard something before like they'll they'll say like you know i've heard i know who alicia keys is but i've never like sit down and listen to her or I I've I've heard of the name uh Cindy Lauper but I don't know who she is like and then they they play it and it's wonderful. You know, when we were first blogging and the like we had it's the same thing. You and I were both like trying to watch classics yeah. in some respect and trying to learn about them and I think you and I always kind of shared that understanding that when we when we watch these we don't go into it with a kind of cynicism. We're going, we're watching it on the basis that it's already got that um, kind of, you know, classic status. You can't go into, say, Citizen Kane for the first time and think to yourself, well, this is 
you know, good luck to you, Orson Welles, and see if you can impress me. Right. It's the case of you're watching it, it's established, and you're there to learn it. And when you tap into what that is, it's so, it, it really lights fire, I always, I always find. I always find it gets me really excited, like, wow, I can't, it must have been so strange to have watched that at that time. It must have been, you know, that must have been so impressive at the time and all that stuff, kind of trying to put yourself into that position. Whereas I think at the same time, you had some people watching films, you know, you know, like Citizen Kane, you know, your top 10 sight and sound films, and they'd almost be like, well, you ha- it hasn't impressed me, yeah. so that means it's rubbish. Why yeah. does everybody li- not like that? And it was such a strange response, but, you know, and I think this is the same thing with obviously these boys. They're clearly listening to something. They're, they know somebody like Phil Collins, Genesis, and his solo career, he's established. So let's have a listen to what is considered one of his greatest songs, and you can't help but get wrapped up in what that is. Exactly, and they, as I said, and every time they're they're coming to it with just so much joy that it's infectious. It's it's a great little yeah. you know six to ten minute dose in the in, in these shitty shitty times, and the the songs that they're listening to they run the gamut, right? Like I mean, they're listening to everything from Billie Holiday to Maroon Five and and everything and anything in between. What else have you been keeping yourself busy with while while we've been locked down? We we rewatched all of The Wire, oh which my God. I can only recommend. I mean, of course, you know, we all watched it way back when, but to rewatch it, it's just so, you know, it is right. I mean, it, the thing is, I've said for years how, you know, somebody talk about like the best television program. I mean, The Wire just is up there. And then if you're lucky, you might be pretty good and close to it. But like nothing, nothing's ever really touched it. And I think what rewatching it, it just certifies that. I mean, it was just incredible. So when you rewatched it, did you rewatch the the new versions that have been uh, that have been letterboxed for for a widescreen presentation? Did, no, did no, it? I kept I, I I kept my lovely DVD uh, copies. I mean, I, I went to it. my big wallet. DVDs, I, you know, I kept my DVD collection. Okay. Um, I was well aware that the Blu-rays crop it, so I was like, I don't want to miss a single bit of bunk on this. So, gotcha. uh, yeah, it was all good. <laughs> um, it's funny. I was late to the wire, which is to say that I did not watch it until it was done. Um, I, I think I first. I actually most people didn't buy it. I yeah. wouldn't. I wouldn't be too hard on yourself. Most people didn't see it until at least even when. I mean, I think I watched it when series five had aired. Yeah. You know, it, it had finished. But and I mean, that's what, that's that's what I think. What makes it so good because it it wasn't tailoring itself towards this kind of audience that was you know kind of dictating anything the reason why aaron paul was kept on in breaking bad after first after the first series was because everybody liked him right you know, you know david simon would never have done that in the wire as no. we know in series three you yeah. know what i mean like yeah. it doesn't matter how much you like a character it that's not how that's not how it is no well. no and i like i do love the way like first of all it's kind of become this um, this secret handshake, like I, uh, something that came up in the last episode that got left on the editing room floor is I've been watching the Americans and it's another one of those shows that you hear a lot of people talking about watching and the fans of it, like love it and kind of can go on for days, but it never really bubbled over the, the pot into the pop culture zeitgeist. And the wire was very much like mm-hmm. that, except that anybody who did watch the wire, who has watched the wire, when any, whenever a, uh, an actor who was in the wire shows up in something else, you're automatically excited. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, this is it. Was it walking dead did that a few times, didn't yeah. it? Where you're like, no, oh my God. You know? Yeah. And, um, we, we, we're also in our first watch of the U S version of the office, which oh. we're really enjoying. And again, you know, obviously Idris Elba turns up in that, which I did not anticipate at all. 
that was great. <laughs> Nobody did. I haven't really gone back to the office since it ended. It was it was one of these shows that was always on reruns. Um for a while back when I would watch more back when I'd have the TV on more passively than I do these days. Nowadays the TV is either on something I'm watching or it's not on at all. Um but the, a lot of times like if I was cooking dinner, uh, TV stations in Toronto would have two episodes of the office at like 6 and 6:30. So I I I watched oh, wow. a few of them a few times, but it's been a very long time since I, I've seen that. How does it compare to the British version for you? Well, funnily enough, the reason I put it up, off for so long was because the first series of the US version of The Office is very much a copy yeah. uh, of the British version. There's, there's certain episodes which pretty much play out the same. Um, but I think because I hadn't seen the British, I mean, I've seen the British one at least three or four times, um, you know, famously because it's obviously quite short as British TV series often are. I, but I hadn't seen it for years. So when I was re- when I watched the US version of The Office this time, I kind of felt very much... Like it felt much more comfortable. The jokes, which I knew, were actually quite funny, and I wasn't kind of like, oh, yeah, no, I know. You know what I mean? Like, I could actually kind of get into this new uh, group of this new ca- group of characters. And, uh, do you know, I mean, it, it's fascinating the changes they've made. I mean, it, the, the, it, it, you can see why it has much more longevity in this version and also why it res- resonates more. I think it, it's it's got a lot more scope and it kind of has to doesn't it with with you know 20 20 episodes 20 episodes plus yeah. a series yeah. it has to have quite a bit of scope to do that and it manages to do that with its cast and with its the characters in it and and, and i also think that actually michael scott in comparison to david brent is more more likable well the other thing i've been keeping myself um occupied with this last week and i know it's not really your bag so I, I won't spend too long on it is um i've been watching basketball playoffs uh my team is uh, is the toronto raptors is trying to defend a championship and they're a really high seed i i i am a i'm as big a sports fan as it gets and all of this seems just so so surreal to me um just there is not a single professional sport that is being played the way it is meant to be played all of it, you know, they're they're trying. The, all of the leagues uh, are trying to mimic the real experience, but they just, you know, without venues with twenty thousand people in them, they really can't. So, I mean, it's 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 a it's a nice little distraction. I will admit that tuning in and watching my team play games that matter for the first time in. I guess six months. Um, it's a lovely little distraction, and I do hope that my team can kind of cobble together another little playoff run. But it's it's just so so surreal to see these, you know, millionaire athletes, these top tier athletes, competing against one another in a glorified gym. All of this is going to be such a strange thing to look back on. Yeah. we've had a similar thing in in England with the football yeah the soccer yeah, yeah exactly it, well yeah you know, it, they've had a setup. Yeah. yeah all like it's it's gonna be you know you're gonna see footage in years to come of empty stadiums you're gonna see goals that were scored with like no crowd noise and you're gonna see like you know coaches wearing masks and players sitting on like really separate spots on benches it's it, it you all you really have to ask yourself if there's these many steps that we need to put in place to do this should we be doing this? And the answer to the whole thing is money. I mean, I am enjoying, as I said, I'm enjoying the distraction, but I really much rather wish that all of the leagues just took a seat 
until things calmed down and came back when it was safer. But meantime, go Raptors. That is our creature comforts for uh, this dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. And we have a feature to get to right after this. Our feature for dispatch number 12 is Captain Fantastic. Come on right back after this. Captain Fantastic was released in 2016. It is directed and written by Matt Ross. It stars Viggo Mortensen, George McKay, Frank Langella, and Dowd Steve Zahn, Catherine Hahn, and Trin Miller, amongst others. Captain Fantastic is about Ben Cash. That's Viggo. Ben and his wife Leslie are raising six children. Bo, Kyler, Vesper, Rylan, Zaja, and Nye. The first twist of the story is that the Cash family is eschewing modernity and raising the brood out in the wilderness of Washington State. The second twist is that soon after our story begins, we discover that Leslie, who has gone back to civilization for treatment in a hospital, has died by suicide. Ben needs to do some hard decision making on what to do next. Does the family venture into the capitalistic world and reunite with old connections who disagree with their way of life, or do they keep marching to their own drum and stay off the grid? It's a hard choice, and eventually it may not even be a choice that Ben and his brood get to make for themselves. With 11 dispatches of the Winchester Chronicles in the books, we have finally reached a unique position with the project. See, so far, every one of the films that's been discussed has come with my wholehearted approval, even my enthusiasm, to discuss them as landmark films of the decade. Today, though, my guest has come to the table with a film I am not entirely convinced of. So let us treat this like a trial. The defendant is the merit of one Captain Fantastic, and its barrister is Simon Collum Esquire. So pop quiz hotshot, please present your opening argument. Why is your client here in the court of Winchester? Well, funnily enough, you know, you, you know, you sideswipe me here because you said that we were both fans and I found a kind of one star review that Peter Bradshaw, who's a writer for The Guardian, gave. And this is just a very small thing which he said, which I was going to respond to initially. He said, there's a meaty whiff of phony baloney in this fatuous and tiresome movie replete with forced emotional crises and wrong notes, topped off with an excruciatingly unearned sentimental ending. I would not go that Is that far. where you're at? No, no, it is not. <laughs> I Listen, if that was where I was at, we would not be having this I'm conversation. Just hang up. I'm just, that's yeah. It. No, 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 no. I am. The, I would never say that, you know, like, what are you on about? Why are you trying to waste my time? You know, that, that's, that's not what this series has been about. What I am saying is I came to this film because... Vigo got nominated for Best Actor in 2016. And the, where I'm at with my movie going is when it comes to films that are nominated for an Oscar for picture, director, acting, or writing, I try to see all of those. Um, and so I had not seen Captain Fantastic. It got nominated for Best Actor, so it came to my attention. And I came away from it saying, yeah, it's all right. That's fine. You know, that's I, I feel as though I've seen this movie before, but it, it's nothing bad I, I would never say it's phony baloney um it was more it's more when it comes down to talking about the best films of the decade where i am less sure like i don't think this film would make my top 100 let alone my top 10 obviously it means more to you so this is where i'm trying to get you to bring me into 
the warm light of column for, for where it comes to the appreciation of Captain Fantastic. Okay, well, I think in the first instance, I think there is a ridiculousness to what you're watching in the first place. I think there is purpose to the decision to not show the more rubbisher elements of this like incredibly fascinating lifestyle in in uh, rural America. I just don't. I I, I know they, they bad things happen, of course. Um, you know, to to kind of show. Oh, you yeah, know, it's you know sometimes people get hurt and there are dangers and of course the conflict of uh, you know how uh, the the mum you know what, what the events that led to her going back into hospital in, in particular you know, art explored, which leaves a certain ambiguity. And But I think the way it's shot from the opening, you know, shots of this beautiful landscape, and then when you see them, and these kids are gorgeous, and the family's lovely. And, you know, I think you're supposed to say, okay, this guy has, for, for all intents and purposes, got it right. And I think um, that's when, you know, because I think when you're if you're a dad, you want to have you get get the very best for your children. You want to choose all the best, and you always feel like sometimes you have to give up some integrity for one or, or compromise in one way or another. But this guy hasn't, and there's a certain arrogance, I guess, with him that has to go hand in hand with that. But he hasn't, and he's got a pre, he's done pretty damn well to get that far. You know, his eldest is going to you know one of the, some of the best universities in the country. You know, you have that moment where you, the uh, kids kind of talk about uh, the Bill of Rights in the house and you see them and you think, you know, he's done a very, you know, an exceptional job with these children. And that's important. That unto itself is kind of ridiculous, like the, the, for things to go so seamlessly up until this point. Then you, the cracks come into it. But I think some people can watch it, you see, and say, oh, well, that would never happen. You know, <laughs> oh, well, you know, that would never happen. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be like that. And it wouldn't be beautiful all the time. You know, it wouldn't look like that all the time. You know what I mean? And I think if you have that cynicism, it's like, well, that's not the point. The point is, if you could write a list of every single thing you wanted to be as a dad and you wrote it all down, you'd probably say, oh, I'd be, you know, plastic free. I would, you know, maybe I would eat all the right things. I would not want them to be that bothered about capitalism. And I want, you know, you have all that list. But of course, you know, that gets eroded away and you have your own weaknesses, your own vices and, you know, it's you can't stick so regimentally to it, but he has, and it's worked, and that's kind of almost the starting point. That's why it's so complicated in that respect. I kind of come down on the the actual storytelling. What I would call this is a good film. Like I, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm being critical, I would say that the other eleven films that we've talked about on this series, um, to, to you know, to a title, they've all been great films whereas this one is either good or very good it's not bad like i would never if somebody were to talk about captain fantastic and they'd be like oh my god that was such a terrible movie i i would kind of question why you know I, I whether or not they went into it with something else or or they have just a different taste in storytelling but it's just it never elevates that little bit more for me when it comes to everything from scope to storytelling to um to the ultimate payoff which we'll get to later on early on in this movie i will admit like when when i watched it again for this conversation i had forgotten how lush it is getting into the story like the 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 camera really wants you to look at this like washington mountainside and really appreciate 
the vast beauty that America has within its borders that's largely unappreciated. You know, like people, maybe they drive through it if they're going from A to B, or maybe they go hiking or, or it's like some sort of like recreational activity like kayaking or mountain climbing or whatever. But generally speaking, it's just something that's out there. You know, it's not where they live. It's not home. And the beginning of this movie wants you to re realize that this is part of the nation and it's a, it's a part of the nation that is underappreciated and, and to a certain extent underutilized. Unfortunately, once it goes beyond that, like once we stay with the family and we get on that bus, um, especially once we get on that bus, like they make a decision that they need to go back to reality and deal with settling their mother's affairs. That's when it really kind of starts to feel like 16 other movies that I've seen before. But the beginning of it, when they're off in that little kind of pseudo Swiss family Robinson, that's actually really, really wonderful to watch. The funny thing is, is I, I, I was looking at the cover today and I was like thinking that, and it was like saying, you know, that whole kind of like they had it perfect or something. And then they had to go to the real world and this sense of that's the story. It goes from this kind of, you know, rural, these, you know, kind of, I'm the, I can't. The first film that comes to mind is California Man. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. With Brendan Fraser. You know what I mean? This kind of out of sorts, and now they're. Th and I, I, I never saw it in that way. I mean, I, I, when I saw it at the cinema, I just saw it because it got rave reviews. I was interested to see it, and da 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 da, da and, and that was it. And so I didn't see this kind of like that's the story. They leave the forest. I never saw it as that. I think if anything, even the kind of premise of them of when they leave the forest is kind of like, you know, we're just going for, for a few days. You know, it's not, I don't believe that even at that point, there's an assumption that they're never going to come back. Um, but the point being is that it's like, you know, them going into the real world, <laughs> it is literally what happens. Yeah. But I just, I, I feel like it was always about the characters and I, I'm kind of more invested about them on their own and what they're learning as much about each other as anything else the the conflicts that they have with uh, their mum's you know wider family uh, is just riveting in those conflicts and each conversation are all these different conflicts that we all internally have and even that setup of being in the forest i think like like i said at the start i don't think that is supposed to be you know that's just the cinematic setup you know what i mean the 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 conversation is how can you raise your children in the best possible way. It's not Crocodile Dundee. No, exactly. Yeah. But I think it's sold to be something like that. And I can imagine that kind of spoiling some people's expectations, maybe. Yeah. I mean, the, like, I think that's my, my, my qualm with it is more once we get into civilization, the actual filmmaking takes a little bit of a dive. Like there's never any sequence that really grabbed me by the nuts the same way the, the like the mountain climbing sequence would or or you know them you know the, them playing their little song by the fire ever did and it's it's not to say that them moving to deal with this family crisis is a bad story because i don't believe it is actually i believe that's a really good story and having to you know stare down your convictions in the eye with anybody who would say that you're crazy i think that that's actually a good story i'm only saying that once they do get into that section of the film that it becomes a little bit like the actual technique of it starts to feel much more safe when really I think that they could have pushed 
uh, a little bit more in some of these situations. Things like, you know, things like the funeral, I think they could have pushed a little bit more or certainly when, um, when they're, in, they're in a trailer park and Bo meets a, a girl for the first time who he really cares about. I feel like that, see, that scene, that sequence could have come with a little bit more tenderness and awkwardness whereas this way of presenting it is very safe i think you're not supposed to see these this family as weirdos no i don't i i don't i never see them like that and so i don't think seeing them kind of these kind of fish out of water situation i think if anything there's an element of arrogance that it should be so seamless and it, and it's just not which is which feels very different in my head let me put a finer point on where i'm going with this the scene where Bo first uh, has that, that, as I said, that interaction in the trailer park with um, Claire is the girl's name. She's played by Aaron Moriarty. And, and, and actually, there's three films altogether that all pulled the same trick. I think about Eighth Grade, I think about Lady Bird, and I think about Booksmart, where they use the visual metaphor of the girl swimming in the pool as this awakening. And I feel like that is the visual tonality that I wanted from a scene like this, whereas the kid, whereas, you know, Claire and Bo are just kind of sitting and talking and the camera's just kind of capturing them. I just, I wanted a little bit more actual poetry to this moment that everybody has gone through, whether your parents like homeschooled you or whether you were in a school of like thousands, every one of us has had this little moment of awakening. And I guess I wanted a little bit more of not necessarily exactly a swimming pool, because I think there is like a little wading pool in the scene but so something a little bit along those lines i i i, I disagree i, I don't i I, di- I didn't <laughs> feel like it needed that but you know i can't i don't i don't equally i haven't got a counter position i totally so, get you what am i <laughs> um vigo is fantastic in this film like i mean vigo was the one who got his uh, oscar nomination out of this film see this is the thing is that this this is a role as well like i mean it all hangs on him really um because you kind of think he he, he has to be this simultaneous these kids have to believe in him like they have to believe him you know being everything he has to have this aura of kind of such surety and he has it and he just carries that so well but it also goes hand in hand with a certain arrogance again that whole scene when he has that family he, he sees his sister and they you know he, you kind of get this contrast between the way they raise their family which is probably more similar to most people and then Vigo's fam- family who are not just you know what I mean absolutely comfortable with talking about the nature of bipolar disorder or you know suicide uh, but also that you know they know the bill of rights they know every you know they know all these things just off the top of their head um and he has got no qualms about that being the best way uh, to raise his children and you have to believe that this guy can a do that could, could actually train his kids in that way. And obviously the physical stuff you see in the opening scenes when they're done running around and all that, you know, you just believe it. And I think that equally, when you have a character like Frank Langella's character who plays the mum's father, uh, he is obviously such a presence. This guy has to go toe-to-toe with him, and he more than does. Um, so, you know, you know, yeah, I... I I adore the film, but I think because I think that conflict, which you can see is inside him, comes through from the get go. I mean, he has to equally deal with his own grief and you have to see that come through. And you do. And it's, you know, really, I I mean, really powerful stuff. Yeah. Vigo, Vigo is like incredibly talented as an actor and he has 
all of these sides to his performance, whatever he's doing. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because a film that happened in the decade before, which actually has some parallels to this movie, is he he ended the decade before this with The Road, um, you know, based on the Cormac McCarthy novel. He's got all of these different sides to him you know of course like like most people kind of first learned about him in the lord of the rings but he like it's not like he's just trotting out there playing aragon every time he he really approaches these roles with maturity with uh, you know this quiet introspection and yeah he's this character very 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 easily could have been a kook this character very easily could have been a crazy recluse who does not want his family to, you know, be a part of the system, who just wants to drop off the grid. And he never really plays it that way. The only time the movie actually, I think, does Vigo wrong is there's one scene where he wakes up and he's standing in the doorway of the bus, fully stark naked. There's people passing hmm. him by and he's like, it's just a penis. That to me felt like a bridge too far. He was like far too logical to be standing there naked amongst like mixed company the rest of the time it's strange because he's making specific choices that you or i may not make but at the same time he's always like showing the math and really embodying what his character is out there to do the thing is he has to be strong enough that you kind of think it you know you you can see that he is adamant that he commits to his principles and again i think we all compromise on our own principles sure and this is somebody who who refuses to um and and that and that is that is quite a figure yeah to to portray um i mean it reminds me a bit of there's a scene when he's driving the bus where his i think it's his oldest daughter is sitting behind him and she's reading lolita and when he gets her to expand on her thoughts of the of the book and she gets down to the point of because a man wrote it you know, you are repulsed by what this man is doing, that he's, he's raping a small child. But because you're in his head, you also feel sorrow and empathy for him. It's that same thing, because like not nearly to that degree, but because of the way Vigo plays this, on the one hand, you'll disagree with what he's doing with these six kids. But because of how it's told and how it's crafted, you can sympathize and empathize with how he's doing it. And you have to. And I think the film hangs on that. He has to have a certain integrity with what he's doing. There should be, And there's nothing false about this belief system he has in place. Um, it's not rooted in a place of selfishness on his part. You know what I mean? Um, it's purely about these kids getting the very best. And he's literally devoted his life to it. And again, that is that's something you you know, it's inspirational, you know what I mean? But at the same time, you know what I mean? Would you see it play out? And it's, it's, it's not easy, you know? Yeah. Now, meanwhile, where the kids are concerned, the, 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 the heavy lifting is done by George McKay as Bo. And, you know, it's, it's fitting that I have you an English guest on here to, to talk about an actor like George McKay, who really rose to prominence in the last 10 years, all sorts of films from Pride to 1917 to even something I love like Sunshine on Leith. McKay is really wonderful in this movie. He, again, has to find that balancing act between acting a little bit kooky and not not overly kooky. Yeah, he's he's the eldest, isn't he? He, yes. he he he's going where I think of that that brother in Sing Street. You know, he's kind of chopping through the forest to yes. try and navigate everything that the parents have set out. 
um, for for the family. Um, and so there's a sense of strength to that, which he carries wonderfully. But at the same time, there's a certain kind of rabbit in headlights sometimes, you know, especially when with regards to speaking to girls. Um, he just clearly, you know, certain things he's still very like, oh, my gosh, you know what I mean? And you, you get a real sense of naivety. Um, it's very well played, very well played. Well, I mean, it's it's funny that you say rabbit in headlights because part of that comes down to McKay's actual face. Like he's got these huge eyes, <laughs> these big brown eyes. So he, he kind of always looks like you've, you've just startled him. But it's, it's always got like an innocence to it as well that he's able to really bring to, to his parts. This movie is very interested in how we talk to one another. Like, you know, it, it, this gets back to what you were saying about this this crucial scene where Ben is confronted by his brother-in-law and his sister-in-law about how the kids need to learn about the real world and how they're being educated. What I think I like about this movie the most is you have this person who is turning a shoulder to conventional capitalist society. But at the same time, he never wants to really um, look down on others. This film is interested in how we converse. It's become incredibly difficult nowadays to have a conversation with somebody who is ideologically different than you. And I think if that that's the one thing I will kind of give you credit for is this film really wants us to try to listen and make our points in a better way. Yeah, without doubt. I think that's one of the most uh, relevant things about this film is how it kind of manages it. Like, you know, it, it's about that kind of first, that, that fight between idealism and realism. And, you know, of course, this is this ideal situation that has panned out for Viggo Mortensen. But the, reali the, the reality is the impact it has on others. The reality is, you know, that these kids will have to deal with these things as they get bigger and such. And so you see that clash and how even if you've done such a good job, you still have to confront that and you have to compromise. And this is something I think we, we've had definitely in the UK with regards to um, you know, things like Brexit and, you know, even the elections, it's always been very too, you know, it's very much polar opposites in terms of whether, it, you know, it's Brexit, leave or remain, these two sides and that middle ground is very difficult for people to come to. And of course, it's the same type of thing in America with Trump, there's two defined sides and you people have to compromise the whole conversation at the moment about something like Joe Biden, you know what I mean? It's like, you have to kind of, you, Joe Biden's better than Trump. I mean, that goes should go without saying, but the fact that some people are still not willing to budge on that is it, crazy. It but is. You, in this film, it kind of says that you have to get that compromise. Yeah, it, it, it's the crazy part of, you know, if, if somebody does not ideologically align with you, that you must cut them off entirely. And, and listen, I understand that sometimes people need to do that for their own mental health and for their own well-being. But at the same time, you do that enough times and we become a really, really fractured society and we don't learn how to really listen. And I mean, that's the thing is Ben... He his sometimes he is smug about it. I must admit, but his approach is, yeah. you know, I will listen to your opinion. I will listen to you know, like let's open a dialogue, and if you prove your point, let's let's go with what you want to do. Unfortunately, when he does that, he usually puts people back on their heels, and they're not actually prepared to have that conversation. But this film, even just within the family, like the family, 
while they present a united front to any outsider who's not part of their little brood, there is dissent within them, you know, like everything from Bo wanting to go away to school to, um, you know, Raelian wants to, Raelian does not agree with a lot of what they're doing. Like Raelian is the one who says, why are we celebrating Noam Chomsky day? And why, you know, mom dying was your fault. And when the parents, when the grandparents eventually enter into it, Raelian is the one who wants to stay with them. But yet when it comes time for the family to present a united front, they're all on the same page. I mean, that's kind of its own little beautiful metaphor because I find that there's a lot of times progressive people in the world will get in the way of progress because they argue amongst themselves about what is and is not progressive enough, and then they can't present a united front to the other side. This film, on the other hand, is saying, listen, we'll squabble amongst ourselves, but when outsiders are around, we're all going to get in line. I want to pose a question to you because I wonder if this is the kind of litmus test you have with this. Do you like Viggo Mortensen's character? Do you agree with his intentions? That's a really good question, and I think that that is core to how you come away from this movie. Um, I like I, what I will say is, this lifestyle would not be for me, you know. And if somebody was doing no, this, I'm not. I'm, I'm not saying that either. Right. But I'm saying if I could respect this character, I could. I could understand and. Um, believe in his ideology and what he's trying to do. And he is like, I mean, he is a likable person when, when, you know, sometimes he's a little bit stuck in his ways, but he's always polite. He's not rude to his family. He's not rude to people who are passing him by. He, he's a little kooky sometimes, but he's not what I'd call somebody who's actually belligerent about his beliefs. He's not the kind of person who every single time you sit down to have a conversation with him, you're going to be given a lecture about capitalism. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I hmm. like him. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with him, but I don't dislike him. I've seen a lot of movies about characters I dislike and who I don't want to spend any more time with. He's not, he's not one of those people. I, I, I just wonder, like, I think, I think when I watch it, you see, while, you know, if I, if I got really into the detail, I probably would change my mind on this. I think on the surface, when I watch it, I look at it and I think, oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I really would. Now, yeah. I, like I said, if you want to get in, if I went into the details of it and you started saying, well, would you really? Because I don't think you'd like this. You're, you're absolutely right. I, I'd probably say, yeah, no, I would never do that. Hence, it's not even on the cards at all. But the point being is that I think when I watch it, that is the fantasy, you know, that you and you watch that you think I, if I could do that. That'd be amazing. Yeah. And I think I don't know if this is maybe what makes the difference, because I think if you can't if you don't watch it with that in mind, then, of course, a it's not a fantasy you even want. You know, what I mean, so, so all the, <laughs> it could be as beautiful as you want it to be, but it doesn't make a blind bit of difference. You're looking at it like, well, it's, it's ludicrous. It's stupid. Um, but simultaneously, I think, you know, then his entire belief, uh, kind of his entire ethos, you know, what I mean, doesn't even work as well. Yeah. Whereas I think when I'm watching it, I'm kind of like, I'd love, you know, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be that. I'd, lo- that. I'd love to be the dad of that family. I'd, you know, I'd be so incredibly glad. And I think that means I get so swept up in it. When I was watching it today, I just, 
you know, at the end, I was in I was in pieces. You're giving everything. And I think as well, just even the culture and stuff, you know, I mean, they're an understanding. I mean, you know, this is where, you, you know, you've got to give that cinematic license to the, all these kids knowing all these things and them talking about, you know, Noam Chomsky or, you know what I mean, or whatever, whatever they talk about and just be like, yeah, yeah, they just they just all know it. I you mean, know what I mean? Because I don't think that's even realistic, but I'd love to do that. What I do like about that is I do like that this is a family that puts a very, very high value on education and learning because I mean, now like you're, you're a teacher and you know that not every school system is designed equally and that, you know, depend sometimes depending on what neighborhood you grow up in or how much your parents make, it will determine what you learn about the world around you. And let's be honest, that's not fair. You know, in, 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 a, in a Western society, you should not be dictated what you learn depending on how much your parents make. This family, at the very least, you know, while they're living out there, kind of, you know, living on the land, having a more modest footprint on this world, they are putting a heavy, heavy, heavy emphasis on teaching their children the very, very core uh, building blocks about society, whether it's you know lolita or whether it's noam chomsky or whether it's the bill of rights they are i must admit like keeping that as part of the story is what keeps the story going because otherwise you're just basically raising feral children and it does kind of make you pause and wonder saying if i could teach my children first of all if i could enrich their education and start teaching them harder stuff earlier would I? Maybe you would. Yeah. And, you know, give them a better chance sure. at investing no actual money in their education and yet being accepted at all the top universities in a country. Yeah. But th that being said, you have the subplot of Relian, that one son who doesn't like it, who doesn't, that way of life does not suit him. And I think... You know, and that's what comes through in that plot. Like, granted, you know, he loves his dad. You know, he appreciates this. But it's quite clear that while for every other member of the family, they seem to kind of go with it and run with it and find he, he's kind of not fitting with it. He'd yeah. much rather be in a more uh, traditional setting. You know, there's, there's always said, one, right? Hey, yeah. But I think that's what's great about, again, from my perspective, is watching it from that kind of view of, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to be able to go rock climbing with my kids the morning, you know, the beautiful sunlight and all that, you know, how crazy would that be? Um, I think that's where that kind of, you have to then check yourself because actually, even if you did, that might not be what's right for your child. Yeah. And that's, you know, make, reminds you and puts you in place as well. So again, being a film, I think it plays with that cinematic license. I think it's supposed to have a certain ridiculousness to it. But I think if you don't buy into what that message is about being a perfect parent, you know what I mean? Or being a, a parent who can give up everything and you know then i think you know you're lost because i think if you don't think he is that i think that might be a, a, a that might be a difficult way then to access the film definitely maybe now the one thing i will give this film props for and it's kind of been it's something that's come up a few times in the series so far is this film wants us to pay attention to the difficulties dealing with death and first of all you've got you know, six kids that need to grapple with the news of the death of their mother. And they're everything from 17 down to, I think the youngest one is about 
six or five. Mm-hmm. Um, and along, so along with the kids needing to have this reconciliation with the fact that their mother is no longer alive, you also have this discrepancy between how her parents want to honor her life and how her husband and children want to honor her life and the, you know, the, the fissure that comes between them. That to me is where this movie is really at its best is when it's dealing with the fallout of losing a family member, because, you know, anybody who's gone through it knows that it, it is really, really easy for a family to start to disagree on how to deal with a death, whether it's to have an elaborate thing or whether it's to move forward with a simple thing, whether it's better to beat your breast and and grieve with like great volume or whether it's better just to shut down and, you know, pull the shades. That's, I think, one of the things that this movie does really, really well is when it takes its time showing that death sometimes can bring out the worst in a family. Well, you know, that being said, I think, you know, the nature of her passing is pretty, you know, difficult, you know, it's a difficult one to process as well. Oh, you know sure. what I mean? It's, you know, she had bipolar disorder. She dies by suicide. Um, and, you know, those two, those two separate issues. I mean, we're in a world now where people are far more aware of mental health issues, but you st- <laughs> there are still people who will, you know, stupidly, you know what I mean, turn around and just kind of dismiss things like depression, dismiss things like mental health from time to time and and kind of you know put it at a disservice equally you still get people who are so cynical about something as grave as suicide and the idea that well you know you know you know it's your choice and this that type you know there are people who still have those type of things so even in the nature of her passing there is a conflict there and you have that that scene with steve zahn where you know they kind of throw in his face you know what i mean well the last thing you said to her was don't be such a fucking bitch mm-hmm. and suddenly the whole kind of family, like, what? They can't, they kind of can't process that. But of course, the issue there isn't, um, you know, we all make mistakes, of course, in Steve Zahn's case. But of course, at the same time, maybe if he could have been just a little bit more understanding to the struggle that she was facing, would that have helped? And is that an important part? So again, I think all of these things play into it um, and are really much more relevant um, than just, you know, this, you know, they're dealing with the loss of their mum. I mean, it's, it's far more complicated than that. And I think that's an important facet to the film. I mean, I like I, I will grant you that is that is something that makes this story so unique is I've seen stories where a mother dies and a family needs to reconcile how to move forward. And I've seen stories where a family is living off the grid. I don't believe I've ever seen the two put together. Like, that's the thing. This is not just the story of a bunch of kooks living in the woods. And it's not just the story of a family trying to figure out what to do. Now their mom's gone. It's, it's both happening simultaneously. And that does lead to some very, very interesting thing. Now that said, we are full on into spoiler territory here, people. So if you've never seen captain fantastic, you may want to turn back. Now I will say that the exhumation of her body to honor her wishes to me feels like a bridge too far. You know, we get to this place yeah. where the where her her husband and her children are upset that her parents have basically gone against her wishes and given her a traditional Judeo-Christian burial. 
And her will clearly stated that she is a Buddhist and she wants to be cremated and not just cremated, but wants her ashes disposed of in the most, uh, in, in a way that I will leave alone just in case you've never seen this movie. So eventually the parents get their way and they decide they have the burial and the family decides, nope, we need to honor what mom wanted to do. Let's go dig her up. That to me was that was where the moment where I was like, "Really, this is where we're going?" Okay, you're, you're allowed. You're, but you're allowed. You're allowed to laugh. You're sure. allowed. And again, I think it. Play, I think it also plays into this is this is a film. You know what I mean? This is not. You know. Well, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, they all seem to be. You know, you wonder if you know. I wonder anyway if I would ever be able to mentally process. <laughs> At a young age, seeing my mother's corpse. No, you know what I mean? the no. Back of a car. The, the short I mean, answer is no. There might just be a very quick change in my life from that point forward. I'm um, certain of it. So, so of course, you know what I mean. You have to just take those things with, you know, put on those kind of cinematic glasses and see it for what it is. And that simple idea of respecting uh, people respecting people's wishes you know what i mean the, 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 you know her 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 wide her wider family her father in particular obviously re- just refused to accept her and everything she believed um yeah. and and that's I mean, that's a conflict right there and the idea that him in his position of power i guess you know what i mean managed to just get the christian funeral that he wanted despite knowing full well that's not what she wanted um I mean, I think the basic the basic uh, mathematics here is that you can see who's who, who's not right in this situation, who and who's wrong, you know? Yeah. And, who, yeah. and who's right. Well, I mean, but it's, you know, when it comes to, I mean, first of all, when it comes to a movie, you know, I believe that there's a whole lot of gray area in between who's right and wrong and who dug up the body. You know, that, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, there, there, was a, there was a better way to write this is what I'm saying than let's yeah, just well, go dig her up. You know what I'm saying? I just yeah. think. You're not supposed to be like, yeah. <laughs> it's not played as a horror. <laughs> You're no, not supposed no, it's, to be at the end it's, as it's, they dance around going, oh my God, yeah. the monster. No, I <laughs> mean, and that's, that's, that, and that's the crazy thing is for how spiritual and how for, for how not um, bogged down with tradition um, the Cash family is, I would have thought that they w- could have just like honored her, honored their mother in a spiritual way and had the same sort of ceremony that they had, but just, you know, without the, without having to dig up the body. Um, I mean, you know, it, it reminds me, uh, it's kind of funny because in, in some ways it kind of reminds me of, um, Elizabethtown and how there was a disagreement about whether he was going to be buried in the family plot or whether he was going to be cremated, you know, and, and eventually they, they come the families. It's, it's a similar movie, but in, 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 you know, much, much messier fashion like i'm lobbing bombs at how mildly messy captain fantastic is and i'm sitting here thinking well at least it's not elizabethtown it, it they come to a more elegant compromise that i feel was right there waiting for captain fantastic to take i wonder what it is when you kind of you know that you have connected to a film in some way shape or form and in that respect you know these things which you know when you put it in such frank terms as, you know, they dug up a body, man. (laughs) I can't ignore that obvious truth. But all I can say is that I know that in no way that did did it bother me watching the film. And I don't, and for some, and and therefore something 
it works. And I, like I said, I do think, and I think it goes back to that whole sense of ridiculousness that it is supposed to be the perfect burial. And you watch it and you think it kind of is at the end. That is what she would have wanted. And it's beautiful and you're crying and the family and the beautiful kids and they're all dancing and you just think, my God, this is lovely. Despite the, the reality of, of, of what, what, you're, what you're saying here. I'll tell you what it is. And it's, it is actually something that I truly believe in and something that I always approach film from. And I, I believe it's a valid approach to film is you are watching this film with your heart instead of your head. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, and, th- and that's what you're saying is, yeah, I know I don't care. And, and that's, perfectly lovely you know there there are several films that i love dearly that have moments of pure absurdity to them and yet i don't care yeah. that they're absurd so no i totally get that but I, I, but equally i want to be careful not to kind of put it in that kind of well it's just a guilty pleasure like no, you know what i mean no, it's no, an no, awful film but i, no, I like no, no. it anyway because i don't the, believe that either yeah you know? that, that's a whole other thing that's a whole other thing of saying like yeah i know it's rubbish but i still have fun watching the rubbish you know like i uh, this is this episode is setting a land land speed record for most other films mentioned in the in the feature um okay. that for me is top gun top gun is absolute jangoistic homoerotic bullshit but when it's on, I go nowhere. You know, that's that's what that's what that is. That's not even this. This is a film where you're like, yeah, it's messy, but I love the mess. It's it's a it's a picture painted with a broader brush than you're used to. That its technique is not flawless, and yet you still find a lot of beauty in the technique that it shows because it did make a choice. That that for me is is now I'm beginning to understand more where you're coming from with this movie and, and why we're talking about it today. I think I think there's two things worth bearing in mind. Number one, I, you know, like I said, I, I, I fundamentally believe that there's a he's made a film here uh, where it's very, you know, it, it's purposeful, obviously, in how it does it. And that's why I feel the way I feel by the end of the film. Equally, you, you wouldn't want to do a disservice to Top Gun. I mean, there is a reason it has its, you know, cult following. And, Stop it. And I mean... I'm just saying, you know what I mean, uh, Tony Scott, he's not a bad director and you can't, you know, if you like something, there's a reason why. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say a guilty pleasure would be fair for Top Gun. <laughs> we could be here for a while if we went down that rabbit hole and maybe someday I will do an episode dedicated to Top Gun. Um, I mean, there was supposed to be a sequel, but, uh, and, there, and there will be someday. So who knows? Um, we've reached the point in the Winchester Chronicles where we talk about this film's uh, reflection of its times. And this is where I put to you, Simon Collum, how would you say that Captain Fantastic embodies the decade just gone by? Well, I think it goes back to like, like we, we, we've mentioned it already, that idea of idealism versus realism and how we have to make some sort of compromise there. And I think this film kind of really does show that. This is not, if you showed this to your conservative parents, they would just think it's rubbish. It's a rubbish concept nobody could do that you know what i mean they wouldn't agree with the morals of the kids in the first place like none of that works but if you're a liberal person if you're somebody who is quite progressive who cares for the environment who does have an appreciation for the things that this family do appreciate then you watch it and you you see that beauty but of course that is conflicted as well 
And the end of this film is that uh, long shot where it just lingers with this family in a much more comfortable setting. Um, but it's there's a compromise there. And there's something bittersweet, I think, about that, which, funnily enough, is left unsaid. Nobody seems to say anything. And yet, for some reason, you watch it and you're thinking, he's got it perfect here. But you feel like even he, even Viggo Mortensen, even at that point, you're not sure if he's happy. And but then that's the nature of compromise, isn't it? You don't get everything you want. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally see that. Um, I think for me, when I look at this film and I look at its its place in the in the decade gone by, I believe the last ten years are the era where over parenting and helicopter parenting really took off in a way that we hadn't seen in the past um you know you're a millennial i'm like the youngest version of a gen x there is we grew up in a very very different way than kids do now we played in very dangerous ways we were able to move in much less monitored ways we could eat what we wanted to eat we were taught different shit and we turned out okay but now we have reached an age where parents in some ways are paying a more active role in ways that are paying off when it comes to, you know, learn their, their kids learning better things and different things and learning, you know, in, in more efficient ways, but in other ways, uh, you know, are kind of wrapping their kids in bubble wrap. And I kind of feel like this is a film that wants to look at that over parenting, that helicopter parenting and say, why, why are you doing this when meanwhile you could go out into the middle of the woods with, you know, Tinder and knives and, uh, you know, some modest shelter and your kids will be fine. You know, that I think is this film's place in the decade. It is, a, it is, if you're North American, it's a middle finger up. If you're in the UK, it's two fingers up to all of the overparents. <laughs> Every time we end the feature here on the Winchester Chronicles, we end it with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Simon Collum, you've got lots to choose from. What would you take from Captain Fantastic if you could? The bus, of course. <laughs> it's a great bus. I mean, it's a great bus. And I think, you know, I think there is an element of that kind of indie kind of cliche. I think I think of Little Miss Sunshine and the like. Um but I think, you know, there's something, obviously, this is a big family um, and, you know, the idea of a school bus and the fact that they eventually make a long journey in some respect to school. Um, you know what I mean? I think it works. And I like the bus. Okay. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that bus. I, uh, I'm sure this will surprise absolutely nobody. I want the books that the family has. They've mm -hmm. got like a great collection of some of the best books. And, and it's, you know, it's everything from... You know, treaties on on American history to you know the the great works of literature like one of the one of the kids is reading Middle March and as I've mentioned already one of the kids is reading Lolita. Um, I would just love to go volume by volume with the books that this man has collected and his wife has collected for their family and just you know spend the whole time just going book by book and learning. Um, that 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 for me would be what I take. I'd just take take the whole shelf. That is Captain Fantastic. Um, you know, as you could probably tell, Simon loves it a little bit more than I do. Uh, I will, as I said, I will admit I like it more than I did on first watch. I like it more than, you know, I did when Simon suggested it to me, which is really the point of this podcast series and my main podcast series is to reconsider 
uh, works that you, you know, there might be more to them that you didn't catch upon the first time. So I am thankful that Simon brought it up, even if it still wouldn't make it very high into my decade list. Um, I'm really happy that we talked about it today. So um, you can find it in all the usual places and let me know what you think of Captain Fantastic. You can email me ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Matt Ross's Captain Fantastic. We are going to take a very quick break and come back after this with the other side. So uh, come on back right after this. We're back. He's Simon Collum. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Winchester Chronicles, dispatch number 12, the last one before we uh, take a break for uh, a few months and maybe come back with it. Maybe not. We'll see. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Captain Fantastic, and this is the time where we go further down the rabbit hole. We flip the record over and play the other side. Some uh, suggest some further reading if uh, some films that go with our feature dispatch. Uh, Simon, why don't you get us started? What is a movie that you think that somebody could seamlessly move on to if they came away from Captain Fantastic and wanted another dose. I, uh, the first, the first one which came to mind was Into the Wild. Ah, um, yes, okay. Sean Penn's film, and that again has that that balance of the beauty of nature and how you know the, the, you you watch it, and you're like, oh my god, it wouldn't it be amazing to just cut your credit cards and just go off in in the into the forest and travel away? But of course, it's a pretty tragic story in how it ends and. And that's an important part of the story. You know what I mean? It's not, you can't just do that. You know, you can't just, you know, cut up your credit cards and just assume that you're going to have the um, primitive means to just, you know, make it in the wild. You probably won't. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I think that was the first one to come to mind. Um, Into the Wild is an interesting selection because that's a film that when I first saw it, I loved that movie. Loved, loved, loved that movie. And I'm pretty sure... If somebody were to dig up my original review of that movie, I'm pretty sure I gave it four stars. Please don't. That's one of the earliest reviews I posted, and I wager good money that the writing is not that good. So first of all, that movie did have the kind of visual scope that I was looking for in Captain Fantastic. I remember that film being stunning at every single turn. That film was just so visually gorgeous. That's the kind of movie that I kind of wish its technique had have been hung on to Captain Fantastic. But I will say that when time moved on and I did a little bit more digging into the story of Chris McCandless, I found that I was a little bit uh, nonplussed on the story because I realized, along with the fact that he just completely turns his back on some really deep privilege um, to go and live this life on the road, I also learned that where he died is was somewhere that the locals realized was spectacularly stupid because he died pretty darn close to safety. He just kept going mm. in the wrong direction. So that to me takes away a lot of the romanticism of this movie when reality kind of deals you that cold hand. I think that's part of that story. I think you could do a very similar story, couldn't you? Where, you know, it's not Chris Candle's true story and it's just this person going in the wild and then realizing how nature's amazing. You know what I mean? And I think there's a real, 
that that conflict there is really, really interesting on all sorts of levels. You know? That's true. Now, I will say that one of my selections for the other side actually kind of goes um, part and parcel with that. So I'll skip straight to that one. I was thinking about um, a documentary, uh, actually an Oscar-winning documentary, from two years ago um, called Free Solo, directed by uh, Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai uh, Vasahali. And this movie, I felt, actually goes very, very well with Into the Wild, because in both cases, you have these young white men who come from privilege, who turn their back on privilege and go live in the wild. The key to it is, in both cases, I found that I don't like these men. You know, getting back to what you were saying about whether or not I liked Ben in Captain Fantastic, I do. You know, I I didn't find him as somebody who was giving up, um, you know, a great amount of privilege and access to live a Thoreau-esque daydreams out in the woods. These guys, Chris McCandless and um, Alex Honnold, these guys I don't like. Alex Honnold especially really seems like he is emotionally detached. In both cases, the films are visually gorgeous. But the second I spend even five seconds thinking about their protagonists, I start to not like them. Well, I mean, I haven't seen Free Solo, uh, funny enough. I was, when, when you were there saying it was a documentary from last year, I was like, oh, that's great. I know loads of documentaries. And then you came out with one I haven't seen, though I've heard a lot about it. it, it, it what, what's, what's it kind of about? Is it, about so, is it just about a guy who goes traveling? Or? No. So to Free Solo is to uh, climb a cliffscape without a rope. You know, to climb it only using footholds and handholds um, the whole way up. So if you think about, yeah, if you think about doing that up, you know, just a few stories, that's one thing. But people in the world free solo these mountainscapes that are just incredibly high. And every time they start climbing up, it's, you know, you're basically just kind of waiting how long until they miss something and they're going to die. You know, it's. It is living with a capital L because they are they are living their fullest extent of just what they're here, what they have the time to do. But at the same time, it is monumentally risky and you wonder why somebody would ever do it. You kind of not have to be entirely all there to even try it. So Free Solo, the film, um, captures this this one particular Free Solo climber. Um, named Alex Honnold, it is stunning. It is absolutely visually gorgeous. There are like just images in it that will make you hold your breath. The music, since I know that it's right up your alley, the music in it is by um, Marco Beltrami. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's a really great film to see. So the, go, the second I think about like Emil Hirsch playing McCandless or the second I think about the actual Alex Honnold or the actual McCandless, I come away from these movies thinking, Jeez, I don't know what I think of those. Mm. So. But, I mean, that, that's that's what's great. I mean, I, I mean, I think you know that's that's the mark of a good film. That like, you know, there is a reason why we're not all doing that. You know, and I think when we watch these things, I, there's a, maybe a similar documentary about base jumpers I saw a while ago, and it's just you watch it, and it is incredible what these humans are doing you know to see them jumping from these enormous heights and these stunning vistas and there's this again akin to uh ben in captain fantastic there's an element of i'd love to do that i really yeah. love to do that oh, yeah. but there's a reason i don't and um sometimes when you see 
that conflict with nature and the power of nature and the reality of some people's characters and how, you know, to be able to do those type of things, sometimes you have to be, you know, you have to almost be, be to be so comfortable and, be, and to be so close to some to death, you know, as it were, you know what I mean? You know, you have to be a certain character for that. And I just, and I'm just not. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And I mean, I do like a film that sends me away with mixed emotions. Like, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I, I love coming away from a movie and just loving it to no end. But I do find that the conversation around a movie is better if I loved A, B and C, but D, E and F just really made my skin crawl. Um, another film that I thought about was when I went to, um, it's another documentary actually. So we're kind of in that mode today. When I thought about eccentric families and in this case, an eccentric family that I do not agree with how they're going. Um, I thought about the classic documentary by the Mazels from 1975. When's the last time you watched gray gardens? You've seen this, no? Oh my goodness. Um, so this is about two women, um, Edith Big Edie Beale and Edith Little Edie Beauvoir Beale, who are living in this dilapidated house, like this this house that looks like it's being held together by sheer force of will in East Hampton. And these women are, how do I put this politely? They're not all there. <laughs> Um, they, 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 they've really been secluded in gray gardens for a very long time. And we just basically spend time learning about these two women who have been off in this little corner of the, of the Hamptons for a very long time. And this is the kind of thing where you will watch this family who's been living off on their own. And you'll be like, they're a bunch of weirdos. These are some people mm. who need some deep intervention like yesterday, as opposed to the cross family out in the woods of, of the Wisconsin or the Washington state park that they're just fine. You know, they may look a little kooky when you first meet them, but you talk to them for five minutes and you're like, yeah, you're fine. You're okay. You're cool. You talk to the Beauvoir mother and daughter and it's like, Oh geez, somebody get like, Somebody get social services in here now because this place needs to be condemned and these two people need a lot of help. I think I saw a, a mock version of that with uh, Bill Hader on the, on Amazon series. Yeah, like the, that's the kooky thing is that the this mother and daughter have become these kind of icons actually through the years since this since this thing was released. Like I mean there's there's been there was a fictional version of this done um a, a few years ago. Um, the, the house itself, uh, was like restored for a while. And I think it's still, it was kind of this place that people like take pilgrimages to. Um, it's just so very odd in every respect. It's one of the, that's a film that I, I mean, there was a musical made of this whole thing. Um, it's, it's just, it's so kooky and it's the kind of thing where, you know, you know, I don't dislike these people at all it, it's it's kind of a it's interesting to kind of parse these various film characters where i've got the cross family over here and i've got the boudoirs over here and i've got the the, the white boys eschewing a society over in their own little court character and you know my relationships with each i don't dislike these women but at the same time i don't want to spend any more time with them than i absolutely have to 
That's what Grey Gardens. Grey Gardens. You should totally check it out. It's it's one of those films that often comes up in terms of like the best documentary of all time. The Maisels, oh, wow. um, you know, the Maisels are the people who did um, all sorts of the best documentary. Salesman, Gimme Shelter. Grey Gardens is one of their big ones as well. Um, so just to kind of close off the section, there were two other films that I thought of that I don't really want to go too far into. One of them, because I haven't actually seen it, but I know it has a bit of a mirror to Captain Fantastic. Um, from, I believe it's 1981, there was the Warren Beatty movie Reds, the epic tale of like Russian revolution. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't seen it. I remember reading about it in uh, Biskin's Easy yeah. Riders Raging Books. But by the time this episode goes up, I will have seen it. And that's because right now it's sitting on my DVR because it was just on Turner Classic the other night. They're doing like the, the Summer Under the Stars in August. Um, and the day that a few days ago was Warren Beatty. So I recorded Reds because I'd never seen it. And I just happened to flip by right as Reds was starting. And the introduction done by Alicia Malone talks an awful lot about how the film has a very very deep anti-capitalist message and how it's kind of a kind of a fluke that the film was even made in the first place given that by the time it was made all of the studios were corporate so what corporation is going to put together an anti-capitalist film with made with a lot of money one two the other film that i thought about which is probably the easiest pull uh compared to captain fantastic is leave no trace from a few years oh, ago yes. with um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben Foster. Um, it was directed by Deborah Granick. We, I, I'm not going to talk about it too much because we talked about it on episode 203 of the Matinee cast. So there will be a link uh, to that episode in the show notes for this episode. But that's got very much the same idea of a father raising his child off the grid and what happens when he has to go back to society. And um, that film takes a very yeah. different course. The daughter is um, Thomas and Mackenzie, who was in That's Jojo her. Rabbit. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Because I, I remember saying, like, we actually talk about her in that episode, talking about how she's going to be going on to big things, and I think we like looked at what she was going to be doing next um, because she her talent really shines through in Leave No Trace for sure. That's a good comparison in that the lifestyle that they're living is not quite enviable. You know, I mean, you're kind of looking at it, and it's pretty you know pretty you know they got nothing you know what i mean they're living off the land because they kind of have to to some extent and whereas you know in, in comparison to captain fantastic it looks like beautiful and stunning and amazing you know whereas that's that's definitely not the way father and daughter look in leave no trace it feels like wow they're really you know struggling here you know they're they're taking a different approach right like they're they're really living by just kind of what they can carry on their backs they haven't created the little compound that the that that the cross family has so mm. you know it's kind of funny like i wonder if the two of them got together would they would they agree on how each one of them was living or would one of them say to the other you know you're really you've got like far too many comforts like why, why are you doing this all right. Well, that is the 12th and for the time being final dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. And I'm so thankful for Simon for coming by. Come on back for sure on Monday, October 5th, where the matinee cast will return for episode 244. We will be discussing I'm Thinking of Ending Things, a new film coming to Netflix directed by Charlie Kaufman. I could be setting myself up for a real big amount of pain, but we'll see how that goes. And as I said, watch your feed during September. I do hope to create something related to the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, it's just going to come down to whether or not 
the universe wants to play on my side. Simon, uh, his uh, next bit of work. My co-host is a guy called Wes Chambers, who's a filmmaker, but he hasn't actually seen the Fast and Furious films. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, he, he, his, his films are more along the lines of Ingmar Bergman and, uh, and the like, and, you know, Jean-Luc Godard. So, you know, the idea of throwing him into the wheelhouse with, uh, the rock and Vin Diesel is a bit of a shock, but he's enjoying it. Uh, but we started the series off at the start of this year and of course watched three, watched the first three and then called time on it, not seeing that it was delayed. So we're going to come back to it in January, tw- January, 2021. But if you like the fact Fast and the Furious films. Our podcast is called Fast, Furious, and a Bottle of Corona. Um, who, who knew that Corona would be so <laughs> part of this? Um, but of course, yeah, do type that into any of your search engines and you'll find our podcast, Fast, Furious, and a Bottle of Corona. There will be links in the show notes for this episode as well if you want to, follow, if you want to find that podcast. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, at Screen Insight. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, uh, Google Play, and Apple, all of which give you handy ways to subscribe for free and alerts when new episodes drop. If you have a um, podcast platform of choice that my show is not listed on, please let me know and I will put it there. Uh, feedback on Captain Fantastic or any of the other films that we mentioned today can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA, or Facebook, where I'm facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Column? It's been a pleasure. It's probably been about 10 years now since you're. When did you start the podcast? I started the podcast at the very, very end of 2009, so I am a senior citizen where podcasting is concerned. Wow. And I was on episode six, wasn't yes, it? Yes, you wasn't were. The first one I was yes, on. Yes, your first episode there has long is. since been archived, um, but I'm happy that you've been able <laughs> to uh, keep coming back and we've been able to keep you on some live shows. And once we get back to something approaching normal, um, I do hope to have you back on again to talk about a full film. Uh, from from current times and do a review. Right now, for Simon, I'm Ryan. Wash your hands and call your person.